Welcome to Dan Malloy's Personal Power Podcast. Get ready to up your communication and commitment game. Hear from those who have succeeded using Dan's program. And now, here's Dan Malloy. Good afternoon, everybody. Uncle Dan here. I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled to have my, my uh, a friend and colleague, Barry Moniak, with me today. And I want to just start off by saying I've, I've really come over the last couple of months to appreciate Barry and what he brings to the table. And I would characterize him as being a, uh, a human being, a man who is uh, committed to helping other people, who is committed to uh, uh, educating and teaching other people, and who brings a, a wealth of uh, experience as a, as, a, as, a, as a trainer, a coach, a teacher, and also as a business consultant and leadership consultant. And uh, so I'm thrilled to be here. I have so many uh, things I want to talk with you about. First of all, how are you, my friend? Doing wonderful. This is so exciting to be able to do this with you. Yeah, I, I, I've been wanting to do it with you for a while now, so this is great. It is. And uh, I have so many topics I want to talk about. I want to talk about how we're all connected I want to, as human beings. You know, I want to talk about bias. I want to talk about something that you, which I don't fully understand, um, that you talk about in some of your videos about dual monitor consciousness. That's interesting. Um, I want to talk about... Uh, uh, how you can determine that we're, we've entered an age of spiritual uh, uh, adulthood. We're approaching that, you know, as a society, as a world, on a world level. Uh, but, but really, I think one of the themes that, that you talk about all the time is fear. So talk to me about fear. <laughs> we're all humans, and it's something I think we all experience from time to time. What is your Every take on the whole? Every single one of us. Right. Yep. And, and for some reason, historically, we have relegated fear as a weakness, a flaw, a character flaw. Mm -hmm. People who experience fear are, are just not okay. In, in business, if I knew that I'm hiring someone who has a propensity for fear, Ooh, no, I need to find someone just the opposite. Mm -hmm. The reality is, and, and a lot of this has come out of uh, sports and extreme sports and talking to people who deal with fear on a daily basis, uh, talking to people like special forces, surgical teams, where the fear factor is palpable Every single time, they never get to a place where they could say, oh, we experience no fear. So how do they deal with it? How do they relate to it? And that's where I found out that fear is a part of the human beingness. It's like part of uh, human physics, like gravity is part of planetary physics. Okay. There. explain so we please can work with it or mm -hmm. we can <laughs> you know run around in circles going oh my goodness you know there's fear here yeah i mean i can remember you know when i decided i wanted to uh become a singer when i was when i turned 40 and i'll just share this with you in terms of fear you know a lot of people have fear of being in front of groups of people but for some reason 
I had a vision uh, of myself ever since I was like five years old that I could earliest vision I could remember is I was going to be in front of large groups of people, always. That was always like the canvas of my life for some reason. So anyway, at the age of 40, I decided I wanted to learn how to sing, and I started singing, 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 and then gradually uh, I met uh, Doreen, and we started a band, and uh, I'll never forget the first the first show we had. Um, one day we were, at, we were at rehearsal. We'd been rehearsing for about three months, and uh, the uh, bass player walks in and says, Hey, guys, I got us a gig. And I said, Oh, crap. I guess we got to do it. <laughs> We got to do this, Uh-oh, right? Just got real, <laughs> right? I got us a gig. So there's this little, little, little hole in the wall uh, bar restaurant in Fort Lee, New Jersey. It's not even there anymore, but it was right next to the George Washington Bridge. It was called Ziggy's. I don't know. Maybe Bill might have. <laughs> Bill's shaking his head. Yes, he's playing. His, he's shaking his head. Yes, it was a tiny little place. But anyway, so the 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 night of our show finally shows up, right? And it's like, oh, here we go. And it was, I forget what time of year, it was like winter. And I show up to go in. There's a line of people. It had to be 75 people outside the place, a line waiting to get in to see us play. To see you. <laughs> right. <laughs> to see us, right? And so it was a little, little nerve-wracking. But I, I remember, but you you do it. I mean, I, I did it because I said I was going to do it, and I was doing it with Doreen, and we had a good group of guys, and we were having fun. And um, But still, it's a little nerve-wracking. It was my first live performance. And I remember we were doing this song, you know, White Room, and um, I, had my, I had my eyes closed, and I was singing away. And I, I opened my eyes a little bit, and I see there's a, a girl dancing on the bar, and I thought to myself immediately, oh, this could be fun. <laughs> uh-huh. People were getting into it. But I mean, the point, the point is, is, it was just like, whoa, the, the fear, especially when I saw a line of people outside the door, I was like, oh, my God, what is happening here? You know, uh, and it was a little, little scary. But, you know, we got over it. And then gradually now, now, you know, many years later, you know, uh, we we do a show and uh, and I really look forward to being out there on stage and, and mm-hmm. mingling with the crowd. Totally different situation. The, you know what the the sensations are haven't changed. The sensations are pretty much the same. But it's just my, that's what I'm saying. It's still yeah. there. You're yes. just having a different relationship with. Yeah, it. that's a good way to say it. A good a different relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had mentioned the the dual monitor, and that that's a good platform to be able to discuss a lot of this for various reasons we tend to focus on one thing and and block out everything else uh if we go too far down that rabbit hole we we compartmentalize things i'm at work and i can't think about my home life or personal life Mm -hmm. okay now i'm home and i can't think about work so we do that and everybody just goes well yeah that's that's the way it is no, it's just what we've become accustomed to. Okay. We can think about two things at the same time. Now, I'm not talking about performing brain surgery while he's thinking about what he's going to do, you know, that weekend on vacation. I'm saying he can think about what he's doing with the tools in his hands, and he can also be holding an awareness of the person he's operating on, his operating team, 
he can do all of that simultaneously. Now, I remember when, when you asked about why I think that, that maybe we're evolving in some way, 30, 40 years ago, if you talked about uh, awareness, consciousness, people just looked at you like, okay, that, that's a little bit woo-woo. Definitely in business world, no, we don't want to hear about it. Now, how many books are on the shelf having to do with mindfulness, which is just another word for the same thing? Mm -hmm. Are we aware of what we're doing and how that is impacting a bigger picture? So we can do two things at once. And where this struck me was going into businesses to do consulting. And I'd look around and whether there was, you know, 550, 500 people, almost everyone had a dual monitor. Nowadays, you'll even see some people with three, but everybody <laughs> oh, yeah, had right. two. Right. So that they could be working on a document or, or a program on one monitor and doing research on the other. And I'm like, so we do know how to do this. And I started talking to them in that terminology. Well, you're used to having a dual monitor. How about if one of your monitors was your personal life and one was your professional life? How about if one was you and the other was the person you're in relationship with? One was you and one was your boss. One was you and the people who report to you. And people are like, Oh, I never thought of that before. But let me ask you a question. I mean, the fact that you're alive and you're an adult, let's say you're talking about adults. Adults have different domains of of living that you have to deal with. I mean, you got you got to deal with money, that never goes away. Yep. You've got to yep. deal with your career, that never goes away. You've got to deal with family, religion, you know, relationships in the community and business, everything, but all these different domains. So I'm I'm not sure I fully understand the this idea How many times of, have we heard a story with someone we know or someone maybe in the, uh, the news, the media, that was doing good, maybe even doing great, and then they made a decision and their world started to devolve. And later they said, oh, there was this amazing opportunity, but I didn't think about the ramifications. I got all excited about this thing in front of me, the thing that could happen, the thing I knew I could make happen, but I didn't think about the ramifications. How many times in a relationship does one person do something and then the, the, the partner, the spouse goes, uh, were you ever going to talk to me about this? And there goes the relationship. So because we, we get into this fixated mindset then we're not thinking about okay. the you're not you're not you're right. not holding it all out there like like the person at the you know the at the circus who's spinning the plates you got to keep them all you got to yep. have a, a attention you know it's interesting because when when a, a few years ago about 2 years ago two and a half years ago i i decided with Doreen that we were going to start up uh, the band again, the music, and get involved in that. And so we did that. And I, I, so I took all, all my attention off of, of um, fitness. I was a big fitness guy, you know, doing, doing triathlon. And so I was swimming, running, biking, and doing training yep. and everything all the time. So I kind of made up in my mind that, like, <laughs> I, I had to focus on the, the, yep. the music. And I kind of gave up on the, the, the fitness. And now it's like two years later, and I was like, boy, that was a silly decision. I can exactly. I, I, <laughs> I, exactly. I have to do both. 
you know, actually. It, it, one supports the other in, in a way, you know. Well, you know, both of us have a, a, a history, a, a penchant for listening to the way people speak and communicate. Yes, of course. And most people, I find, speak in an either-or language. Well, I'm hmm. either this or I'm that. I'm either going to do this or that. I'm either going to, you know, stay in my fitness regimen or I'm going to go follow my music passion. And the limitation is self-imposed because yeah, of that okay. either-or right, yeah. conversation. Well, I, I, we I, yeah, I could see that. Sure. Little letters. Well, I want to do this and that. Then we start exploring the possibilities of, well, is that possible? Well, if I want to go skiing and I want to go surfing, hmm, might not be able to do both of those on the same trip. But how many things could we do? And snowboarders figured it out. They said, well, why don't we just make a surfboard that'll work on the snow and they're <laughs> surfing mountains right. and you can't tell them they're not surfing. Right. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. What about talk to me also? I, I is something I'm um, actually fascinated about is you mentioned in one of your videos about how how we're that human beings are all related, and I have some some things to share with you about that. But there's also a book I haven't read it, but I've skimmed the cover and whatever. A book called The Divine Matrix. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I have heard of it. Yes. Yeah. Um, who I forget who who wrote it, but. Uh, but the whole concept of being related to everybody all the time um, is something that's, that's of tremendous interest to me, you know, physically related, you know, biologically and not or necessarily biologically, energetically. Yeah, that's a better, the yes. better word. When I was studying uh, different animals and species and somehow I stumbled upon the piece of information that every species has a collective consciousness. They all act and behave the same way. They, some of them have ways of communicating with one another. The a prime example is, you know, a flock of birds. How do they know how to get into oh, that perfect my God. How well, do you they watch, know when you watch when there's, there's down south? When there's 500 birds flying around together, and they just move in unison. I mean, how does that happen? Yeah, there's some level of connectedness. And that got me to pondering, because I've always been fascinated with the human condition. Well, are we like that or are we different? And I started finding more and more research that humanity is, in fact, a collective consciousness. We just have a heck of a time seeing ourselves that way. Yes. Because you're over there and I'm over here and... Never the twain shall meet. And yet when you start getting into these different things of, you know, the sixth sense, you know, the, the more psychic realms, you're thinking about someone. I'm like, wow, I haven't talked to Dan in, in years. I wonder how he's doing. And the phone rings and yes. it's Dan. How did that happen? Yes, that, oh, it's just a coincidence. That happens all really? the time. No. <laughs> No, I don't think so. I think that is uh, that's definitely real. Do you know what my wife does, by the way? No. My wife is one of the world's leading psychic mediums. Really? Yeah. Yeah, so we we deal with this conversation all the time. <clears throat> you know, we we you and I deal in the domain of communication, human communication, right? Uh uh and we we don't really talk about 
other forms of communication such as this or spirit communication. But, you know, I'm very much in touch with, with, with that world through Doreen. And um, it's fascinating. But, but yeah, I know there's a doctor, a physicist that I met by the name of Claude Swanson. And he wrote a fascinating book. And I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, but there was one one piece in the book where he – it was just a bunch of studies – and, and I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to try and remember it. Hold on, I said, Billy, would you look up Claude Swanson and see what the name of his book was? That's what I'm doing. Billy, thank you. Um, and he's a, he's a, he's a, a MIT physicist, and uh, I think he w- w- also went to Yale or Princeton or some brilliant guy. I met him, and I had a nice chat with him. And he uh, synchronized universe. Synchronized universe. There we go. <clears throat> but because he he had studied classical. Uh, you know, as a classically trained physicist, he knew there was something else because he saw all this paranormal stuff going on that couldn't be explained by the models that the physicists were using. So he wrote this book, his attempt, he wants to come up with a unified theory of of how the world works. Right. You know, and... You know, it's and, interesting, if we roll the tape back in time, uh, the spiritual religious community and the scientific community were at serious odds. Mm-hmm, okay. And yet, at some point, it was the scientific community that had the aha moment. Well, aren't we pointing at the same thing, trying to describe it? They're using a finite language. We're using an infinite language. Hmm. What if we learned more of their language and all of a sudden, guess what happened next? What's that? <laughs> Quantum theory. That there's actually more space inside the atom than outside the atom. And all the scientists went, whoa. Okay. Isn't that what the spiritual community has been pointing at? Is there something else inside of everything that we think we know? And so... 30, 40, 50 years ago, you'd really want to talk to someone who had more of a spiritual bent to understand these things. Nowadays, I would rather talk to a physicist about these kinds of things because they're actually understanding and rather than operating from a psychological, intellectual language base where they're trying to prove themselves right, the scientific community is operating from a more philosophical language. Well, this is what we know today, but you're going to have to come back tomorrow and ask me the same question because I could change my mind as soon as I get better quality information. And they learn new stuff. They they... Discussing with one another, hey, this is what the world looks like to me. What does it look like from your perspective? Mm-hmm. Spiritual community doesn't do that. Well, in our program, it says this. Well, that's based on a belief system. Right. Scientists are just trying to figure stuff out. Right, well, right. We already know we don't know stuff, but how much more could we know? Yeah. In Swanson's book, he wrote, there was a chapter, a couple of, well, the whole book is really fascinating, but there was one one chapter in there about plants. And there was this fellow, uh, he was a polygrapher. He was a, you know, and that's what he did. He he did uh, did polygraphy for the uh, you know, police departments and whatever. So he was sitting alone in his house one day, and he decided to, just for grins and giggles, he was going to hook up the his uh, polygraph 
lie detector uh, equipment to a plant, a house plant. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And so and how that works that and I'm not a polygrapher, but I mean my understanding of how it works is that you you first you hook hook up the subject and then you get a baseline of the uh the activity that right. that's so now you you put it hook it up for 15 minutes and you have established a baseline. Mm-hmm. Then he then he said to himself, "Well, I wonder I wonder what would happen if I go up and rip one of the leaves on the plant." And lo and behold, before he even got up to rip the leaf, there was a change in the <laughs> in the machine. It was started right. to measure something, right? You know that 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 the the plant was actually uh, was actually he was in touch with the plant in a particular way. The plant was somehow communicating with his thoughts. And they did this right. experiment over and over and over again, and it's just the way that it is. Uh, I remember reading about things like this where they had their baseline and then someone was brought into the room and there was a change. And then someone else was brought in the room and it was a different kind of change. Well, this is just a thought. This discern that positive people were causing one kind of change, negative people were causing a different kind of change. And I'm like, whoa. And they say plants don't have feelings. Well, then how did they do that? Right. Exactly. That was, I mean, it's like pretty incredible, you know, that, that type of thing. They did, there was another, experiment where they took uh, saliva uh, from from a subject and they put it in a test tube and they took two vials of saliva and they had a, a, a device they could put into the saliva to measure what was going on with the saliva, right? Mm-hmm. Then they took a vial the same from the same subject and flew it around to the other side of the planet. And when they messed with the saliva on this side of the planet, it was also being able to detect it on the opposite side of the planet. Mm-hmm. So there was a connectivity, you right. know, uh, that, <laughs> so to your point, I guess, you know, like on some level, on a, there was, there we're, was we're all connected. Kind of a phenomena, the, um, the hundredth monkey syndrome, where these monkeys on a tropical island were eating fish and they were getting sick because the inland waters had become polluted from, with the seawater. So they were eating too much salt. And somewhere along the way, supposedly the hundredth monkey said, well, I'm going to take this fish out of here and I'm going to go over here and, and wash it in some fresh water and ate it. And the other monkey said, oh, monkey see, monkey do. They started doing it. Well, round about the time that the hundredth monkey took his salty fish and cleaned it off in some fresh water, monkeys on a different island started mimicking the behavior. And there was a huge body, miles of water between these islands. So it's like, okay, how did the memo get from one island to another to let these monkeys know that that there's a better way of dealing with this problem? You know, it's it's fascinating stuff. You know, so much that's unexplained. You know, we uh, every Friday night. Actually, today's Friday, so every yes. Friday night in the Malloy household, my wife puts on as this show on the History Channel called Ancient Aliens, and um, many times they they have these fascinating shows about um, these monoliths that are created all over the world that are almost identical. Mm-hmm. So you have you have a, a pyramids over in in Europe 
that look that are newly discovered actually that are almost identical to the ones in South America and the ones right. over in the Middle East and artifacts that you know it's like that are created in such a way that how could how is it possible that you could have identical artifacts in the Middle East and have the same ones in South America you know in mm -hmm. Bolivia or wherever they they find them or Machu Picchu or something like that and it's like they they're just too similar how is that possible that they're thousands of years old and they're almost identical? Right. Do you remember that movie when we were younger, Chariots mm -hmm. of the Gods? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. They made a documentary of all that kind of phenomena. Yeah. How did they get these stones hundreds or thousands of miles to Easter Island or to here? Right. To there? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Pop circles and all these things. And everybody went, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. Yes. See, this is the problem talking with you. And I, I, I as I get to know more about you, um, uh, you know, there's so many, so many topics we can talk about. Let's let's finish up again a little bit about because we've we've already been talking for half an hour. Okay. Do you believe it? So let's let's look at let's talk about fear again and how and how people. I want to leave people listeners with something that they can put on the court. Okay. You know, how, how can they, if, if you were coaching somebody in, in, in business or in life in general, how would you teach them to relate to fear? What, what, would, what would that, so that it's an empowering experience okay. as opposed to one that's debilitating? So I have a three-step process. The first step is to face the fear. Take a good look at it. Because in the world of fear, from a human experience, there's two sides to fear. There's real fear, natural fear, and there's imagined fear, projected fear. Okay. If something bad, if there's, you know, uh, to use one of your analogies, the 1,500-pound lion, you know, that's licking its lips because I'm going to be dinner and I'm experiencing fear, well, you're darn right I should be afraid because... I'm in imminent danger. Right. Uh, when people are are on a uh, precipice and it's hundreds or thousands of feet down, they experience fear. People who go to like the Grand Canyon and they look over the railing and all of a sudden they're they're like, whoa, I've never felt anything like that. That's real fear. But it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something that we should really wrap our arms around and say, thank you. I have some kind of an internal protective mechanism that, that's a warning, you know, like the idiot lights on a dashboard. Hey, dude, take a step back. You know, leave the vicinity of the lion. Right, <laughs> Things right. Will sure. Go better for you. Yes. The other side is this thing that we created where it's manufactured, it's projected, it's not real or imminent. Your story about, oh, you know, if I go up in front of these people and start playing music and sing my songs, bad things could happen. Well, we don't know that that's true. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a figment of your imagination. It's a figment of all of our imagination. I can't ski. I can't this. I can't run a company. Whatever it is, it's like, well, which side of the fence is it on? If it's real, say thank you. End of conversation. If it's imagined, now we can look at it and go, okay. What is the fear telling me? Because it's giving us information that we either lack the mindset or the skill set to deal with whatever it is in front of us. 
Again, really good information. Hey, if I got a little bit more knowledgeable, a little bit smarter about this, if I developed a better way of dealing with it, all of a sudden it's not so hairy scary. So the step one is face it. The step two is embrace it. What is it telling me? What could I learn from this? Well, if you want to be a singer in a band, hmm, you might need a good voice. You might need to be able to sing well. You might need a band that can play some good music because without all of that, yeah, now things might not go as well. But if you do the work, oh, okay. Then what happens? The third phase is we befriend the fear and we use it as fuel. As embrace it. Embrace it. Yeah. Do the thing yeah. we're wanting to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Looking so now looking when you go into it, yeah. a, a performance, you already know there's going to be nerves and jitters and stuff like that. But you also know that people are going to like it. And when they're liking it, that's going to make me feel good. And we're just going to feed off of one another. And it is going to be an awesome time. Well, that had, I mean, that my part, they're going to do their part and we're going to befriend this activity. So that, I think some of that comes with maturity. I mean, you know, some practice and, uh, and uh, realizing that you are competent at what you're doing. If you're in music, I think is a great example. If you, you know you have a good band, a kick-ass band, you know, and great guitar players and everything. So you, it's a show that you're putting on and you're, you look forward to giving that and sharing that with, with other human beings, you know. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it, but, but I see the big differences. One is, you know, manufactured fear and I can see then the other one is real fear. It's, it's, it's happening. Yeah. It's if you're standing yeah. on top of a mountain, a snowy mountain, and you start sliding down the mountain and you have no idea what to do, guess what? That mountain's going to have its way with you. Yes. Gravity and, and the pitch of that terrain are going to dish up something for you that you're probably not going to like. Mm -hmm. If you face it and go, there is something real, but there's also something imagined. I'm freaking myself out here. So what do I need to learn? Well, you need to develop a mindset of just like, think about the first time you got into a car to drive it, not to be a passenger as a little kid, but now you're behind the wheel and there's so many things going on and the car starts moving and it's like, whoa, 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 this is a lot. Well, I could put you in a car anywhere in this country and how many seconds is it going to take before you're ready to put the key in, push a button, adjust to the mirrors, the seat, and you're, you're ready to drive. You'll figure everything right. else out on the way. Right. Okay. It's the same thing. If people would learn on the mountain how to slow down, how to stop, how to make turns. Oh, I've got some tools. Now I'm embracing this force of nature and the people who fall in love with skiing have befriended it because guess what? The mountain provides momentum. Without it, there would be no skiing. We so, can go out to a flat yeah. field with five, 10 feet of snow. That's called cross-country skiing. You got to work for it. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so it's something to do with competence too. I mean, what I'm, what I'm seeing is, you know, like the whole idea of fear. If you're... If you're competent at what you're doing, then 
the, the what we used to call fear is maybe better termed uh, nervous excitement or something nervousness like that. anxiety yes yeah but I mean but it's it's there it's it, it's going to be there I mean even now you know before a show you 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 wait you're practicing for months and then all of a sudden it's it's showtime it's mm-hmm. you're excited and you're a little nervous you know but it's but you know that it's going to be a good show. You know you, you know you know what you're doing, and so you get out there and you do it. But I agree with you 100%. That competency factor is something that most people get um, lazy or lethargic about. You know, it's funny. Oh, you I talk can't a, cook. You talk about skiing all the time. I never got to be. <laughs> I was you know, I, I was an intermediate I skier. I can't. I could never be a long. I can't this. I can't that. Well, let's just look at the individuals who do any of those things. They weren't born that way. Right. It's true. They started reading a book. They took a class. They started practicing. You know, you go to an amazing restaurant and you have this meal and went, wow. And the chef comes out. Oh, you enjoyed my meal. How many meals have they prepared to put that one in front of you? Tens of thousands. Yep. How many times have you sang the song to know I can walk up in front of an audience and I can nail them? We don't think about that because we're lazy. We, we want it to happen now. <laughs> we want to take a pill. Yeah. But uh, hey, want a brain surgeon that woke up this morning going, you know what? I think I'm going to be a brain surgeon. Lay down. Let me cut on you. No, I need to know that for decades, this guy or gal has right. been practicing and they know what they're doing. I need to feel that confidence. Exactly. Exactly. But listen, you know what? I, I really, I want to take a little break right now and we come back. Okay. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, is, again, like I said, I knew getting into this cause I started writing down all the things I wanted to talk about. And we're, we've touched on a few of the topics uh, we could do this. Certainly, I want to do this again with you. And uh, uh, so, uh, Billy, we're going to just take a little break right now. We'll come back and I'll wrap it up. Malloy Sales Development turns companies into commitment-based operations and their employees into commitment-based people because commitment for human beings is the foundation for everything. And in business, it's mission critical. Because the only time commerce happens in any company is when commitments are exchanged internally among employees and externally with customers and vendors. Visit us at www.malloysales.com. Well, we're back again. Uncle Dan here. And uh, again, I really want to thank my friend and colleague, Barry Moniak, for for being here with me to share his his insights uh, how did you like the way I characterized you, Barry, when we opened up as being a, a you know, a, a, a teacher and a mentor? And uh... I, I love it. It's always interesting how people introduce me because, oh, so that's how they see me. OK, right. And, exactly. You know, I really I really like your perspective of me. Exactly. So um, what have you have you written a book? No, I, I did a little something a few years back that was uh, physical exercises that people could do in their office space, in their work clothes, that at the end of the day, their body would say, thank you, because we <laughs> tend to sit in a chair at a desk for, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours, and then wonder why our legs ache or our back aches or, you know, our cholesterol's going up or this, that, the other thing. Um, human bodies weren't designed to sit 
for longer than an hour, hour and a half max. So these were little two, three minute things that you could just stand up and do in your office space. And yeah, that was that was. It's interesting you say that. You and I think a, uh, a lot alike. I think in some ways, like I have my offices in in my uh, in my my home, and on one side I, I go over. I have I have my weights, my dumbbells. I don't lift heavy weights, but I have dumbbells over there. So I go over every now and then I just do a few reps yeah. of something, and then I have a pull up bar. So I do a few pull ups, and I, <laughs> I come back and sit down again. You know, it's funny. But we live in an age where you know virtual has become. The, the, the new norm. And I'm like going, okay, I cannot sit at a desk and watch these, these Zoom meetings, go-to meetings, hour after hour after hour. So I got me a, a height changeable desk where I can sit if I want. I can lift it up. I can stand on my BOSU ball while I'm watching a, you know, a video presentation. It's getting my body some awesome exercise and uh, getting two birds with one stone. I have to ask you more about that next week when we talk again. But right now, I want to say goodbye to everybody, and I want to thank, really thank uh, Barry again for being here. This has been a great discussion, and um, we'll catch everybody on The Rebound. 